0: Stuff Podcasts. Previously on The Commune.
1: They often looked like boiled lollies when they were walking around. Of course there was always that underbelly of the
2: free sex. And that was it.
0: This episode of The Commune contains strong language and references to sexual abuse.
3: You don't have to impress anyone. It really is okay to be just as you are, to let go a little more. And as you relax, you can begin to let your eyes close and just feel yourself drifting off. And you don't have to stop thinking if you have thoughts going through your mind, you just watch them go through.
0: If you were a kid in the early 1980s, there's a decent chance you played Space Invaders at least a few times. If you weren't lucky enough to be one of those kids, here's how it works. So, you're a green blob at the bottom of the screen, and you're moving left and right, firing little white bullets up at a bunch of nasty aliens who are slowly moving down the screen towards you, just rows and rows of them. And then between you and the invaders are some barriers, about four or five of them, and you can hide behind them to avoid the alien's bullets which are coming down the screen. And every now and then, a mystery alien zooms across the top of the screen, with extra points if you can shoot that. So as the game goes on, the invaders speed up. They get faster and faster, harder and harder to shoot. And if you don't shoot them first, they eventually get all the way down the bottom of the screen... And you're toast. Space Invaders, it's basically the sound of the early 80s, right? But it's not entirely silly to see a metaphor here, because there's something that happened between Centerpoint and its Albany neighbours. And you could think of Centerpoint as being that player at the bottom of the screen, trying to fend off a much larger army of invaders. Because the thing about Space Invaders, especially in the first few minutes of the game is that for a while it's actually possible to hold off the attackers even though you're outnumbered. Choose your shots, play strategically, you can clear the whole level and live to fight another day. I'm Adam Dudding, and this is The Commune. Episode 5, Invaders. So back when Centrepoint arrived in Albany, the neighbours were curious. But mostly, not too bothered. I mean, there was some scepticism and shock. After all, this place was run by a guy who was prepared to take a crack at nuns about how much sex they were having. But mostly...
1: It was just a non issue.
0: This is Derek Firth, the lawyer whose 12-acre section backed onto Centrepoint.
1: We heard from him in episode two. We just knew that there was this commune group, that they were perhaps a little bit unusual, but it was of no consequence to us at all. And they were restricted to a certain number, which might have been 60 or something like that. And it was just a non-issue for us. And right there, those very words... Restricted to a certain number. That would be the
0: spark that finally set off the war between Centrepoint and some of its neighbours.
1: Very simply, they applied to the council to be able to expand their numbers beyond whatever that original number was. And at that point, neighbours contacted us and said, look, we're not happy about this and we're banding together and will you band with us? As Derek said, Centrepoint
0: had permission to have 60 people on site. But by 1981, three years in, they already had about 140 people living there. They wanted to tidy that up with an increased limit, but decided to go even further and told the Takapuna City Council they wanted permission for 300 residents. And all hell broke loose. Over the next few years, Centrepoint would get caught up in seemingly never-ending rounds of appearances before the council and court cases and application hearings. And these were no ordinary hearings. It was a circus. This amazing clash of cultures that... Took in religion and sex and philosophy and psychology and plenty of legal fireworks. And Derek,
1: being a lawyer... The only lawyer in the group, so (laughs) you don't need two guesses to know that I ended up in a leading role.
0: So yeah, Derek was right on the front line of this grand-scale Neighbours at War scenario. And he's quite open about what motivated the local opponents
1: at least at first. It was the fact that their lifestyle was so unusual that to have it expanding, uh, we could see having an adverse effect on the value of properties.
0: Good old property values wouldn't be a story about Auckland if we didn't arrive at house prices at some point. But it wasn't the council's job to preserve Derek's property value. He couldn't fight Centrepoint on those grounds. So what else could the opponents do? Was there anything they could use against Centrepoint?
1: Oh yeah. There sure was. What we had done to prepare for these meetings was to get, I suppose, putting it bluntly, as much adverse evidence as we could. And that generally centred around their way of life and, in particular, the fact that the teenagers and younger uh, were exposed to sexual predatory. And we had plenty of evidence of that. Okay,
0: so things are starting to converge. The stories that Derek and his team of opponents are collecting are lining up with Robert's insider knowledge. When we left Robert in the last episode, he had overheard Bert talking about sexual abuse of a young girl, and he'd gone to tell the girl's father. He'd also tried to talk to other members, and then eventually he'd quit Centrepoint, and also had that big standoff with the community when he went back to get his kids in his Peugeot ute. So now Robert's living outside the community he's got this horrible awareness of what's happening, what's he going to do? Well, Robert does what you kind of wish more people had been prepared to do. Instead of turning a blind eye or being taken in by the guru, he goes to the police.
4: And just said, look, I'm here to give bloody evidence and spoke out about the child sex allegations and my lack of fulfilling the plan that I purported we were going to do.
0: Yeah, as well as telling the police about the child sex allegations, Robert gave a very detailed, very long statement where he laid out all sorts of ways in which he thought Centrepoint had gone off the rails. And that evidence ended up with Dean Thomas. You might remember that name. Dean was the North Shore detective who had investigated the suicide of Susan. That's the nurse who didn't want to share Bert. bird. We've had lengthy phone calls with Dean, and although he didn't want to be taped for the podcast, he was happy to talk about everything that had gone on. The interesting thing about Dean is that even before he investigated Susan's suicide, he had been taking a very close interest in Centerpoint. It all started with a guy whose wife was suffering from postnatal depression. She had been referred to Centerpoint for help with it, and had gone on a seven-day therapy session. Then when she returned, she told her husband about all the men she'd slept with that week. He was shocked, so he went to the police and the detective who was assigned to talk to him was Dean. Dean was shocked by what the husband had to say too, but these were consenting adults. No laws had been broken. All the same, he decided to dig deeper. He also started to talk to people who'd left Centrepoint. At one point, he even went to visit the place and talked to Bird, Dean tells a story about taking a typist out to keep a record of what Bert said in that interview and of how shocked she was by Bert's outrageous stories about what they'd get up to at center point, open relationships and things like that. But no matter how shocking the stories were, none of what Dean found crossed any kind of legal line, even if they were well outside society's moral norms. Then, Robert comes along. Suddenly, Dean has the lead he's been waiting for, a witness talking about actual illegal behaviour against children and carried out by the commune leader, Herbert Thomas Potter. So the police are on the case. Dean is ramping up his investigation and Ray Van Bainen, that young North Shore cop who bought his veggies in the Albany Basin, he's also hearing things.
2: I was getting information separately to what Dean was doing and I started to pull things together because I had the drug portfolio for the Takapuna North Shore area at that time.
0: Yeah, Ray is hearing allegations about drugs at Centrepoint. So he and Dean start to work together. I was picking up some stuff around the use of drugs, a little bit about the sex
2: stuff but more around the use of drugs and on a scale not just smoking a bit
0: of weed but We're talking Class A drugs. So you've got these two cops taking a close interest in Centrepoint. Whistleblower Robert has done his bit by talking to them, but he's not finished yet. He starts telling anyone who'll listen about what's going on at Centrepoint. He does some newspaper interviews. Stories about him pop up in the Sunday News and Truth. Back in the day, those two papers were probably the closest thing New Zealand had to a British-style tabloid press. And you can tell because the headlines were things like... Kitty Sex Cult Exposed. And... Sex Shocker Being Probed. Anyway, for a while there, Robert was a sought-after interview.
4: There was an Aussie TV crew came over and interviewed me in front of my fire. And then I ended up doing an interview with New Zealand TV, and it was a woman who was interviewing me, and I remember it quite classically because... She spoke like this, but when she interviewed you, she was, oh, so differently spoken. (laughs) (laughs) She really turned it on, you know, it was quite lovely. First time I'd run into that
0: sort of shit. Robert also pops up at the council hearings that Derek Firth is involved in. Now, the reason for this is sort of mundane. Robert knows all about the water and pipes and stuff at Centrepoint, and one of the hearings, it was all about the water and pipes and stuff at Centrepoint. And as much as Robert was appalled by the sex abuse, he was also pretty pissed off about the Centrepoint infrastructure. He'd been involved in initial discussions with the council. He made promises on Centrepoint's behalf about how they'd stop effluent, human shit, from ending up in the creeks. And then one day, this is all before Robert quit the commune, of course, he discovers that behind his back, Bert thinks he's found a better way to deal with the drainage, involving jellignite, jelly. So, one time, Robert has been away and gets back to discover...
4: And here's Bert in with a commercial driller, drilling down, getting down a fair way, and then dropping a few sticks of jelly in there and blasting it, just shattering the ground, trying to shatter it so that it would
0: pipe down to Lucas Creek, of course, see? But it didn't work. Robert turns up at the council water hearing and blows the whistle about that. But once he's done with water... Robert kind of goes off script. During our interview, producer Eugene reminded Robert about one of the statements he had made to the council.
5: You also gave some examples of how he ignored the law. And there's even one statement where you talk about you were witness to Bert giving instructions to community members about breaking the law. Shall I read it out to you? Yeah. It says, At a meeting of the community attended by most of all the residents... I recall Mr. Potter saying, if I tell you to break the law, you'll break it. Oh, yes. And in time, you won't even question it." Yeah. Remember that?
4: Yeah, I do remember that very clearly. It was in context of the power he was wielding, the essence of him being the uh, omnipotent bloody Bert, you know. That was at our weekly meeting. He says, you know, if it's about breaking the law, if I tell you to break the law, you'll break the law. And in time, you won't even question it. And I
0: thought, you pompous prick. Yeah, that really blew me out. Shit, I'm amazed that you've got that record. In that same document Eugene's talking about, Robert also says this. I was revolted by the sexual activity between some adults, including Potter, and children, many of whom were well under the age of 16 years. Unfortunately, virtually all of the residents at the commune while I was there were prepared to blindly follow him and his ideas. Boom. There it is. Robert is telling a public hearing about sex abuse at Centrepoint and how people are blinded by Burt Potter. And remember, at the same time, you've got the opponents, that group of neighbours, including Derek, compiling their own
1: evidence. Putting it bluntly, as much adverse evidence as we could.
0: Derek is keen to point out that his group weren't prudes. The sex between consenting adults...
1: No problem. The driving factor was to oppose the expansion. It was not to oppose them being there, but to stop them expanding and to out them uh, with the uh, position with children.
0: Because as far as Derek was concerned, there was no question about what was going on.
1: It was absolutely clear from what we were told by people who'd been in Centrepoint and had left that many of the members were having sexual intercourse with um, girls, mainly under... I don't think we heard anything about boys, but certainly with girls under 16. The newspapers
0: were reporting Robert's sensational stories. They were also covering the council hearings. So Derek says his team started getting approached by people with more stories
1: from inside Centrepoint,
0: sometimes from people who weren't residents, but had just been on therapy
1: courses. There was a a woman who came to us, and I can't remember if this was included in any evidence or not, but hers was quite a remarkable story she um, went to one of these open weekends but ended up being offered a massage. So she thought, well, that'd be nice, I'll have a massage. You see, so She was asked to strip down to, to the nude and lie on her tummy on this massage table. And my recollection of her story is that she then waited and waited and waited and eventually a chap came into the room along with the center point person and the center point person explained to her that this male he always had a fetish to stick his finger up a woman's backside, and that's what um, he'd like to do with her. And she was just dumbstruck, and it happened.
0: Now, you could say, well, she was an adult and she presumably went along with a good idea of Centrepoint's reputation. But no, this is a woman who's saying she was sexually violated. That's a crime. Line it up with what the opponents are hearing about the child sex allegations. And what Robert is saying, and it's not looking good for Centre Point.
4: one of you
0: OK, so've established Centrepoint is under pressure, and in serious ways, the Takapuna police are investigating a credible report of child molestation by the commune's guru. And just down the road at the Takapuna city Council there's hearing, after meeting, after hearing, after meeting going on they supposedly about maximum occupancy and water, but again and again the councillors are hearing allegations of sexual weirdness and sexual abuse. So how does Centrepoint set about repelling these threats? We know from those tapes of Bert's talks that protecting the community was something he thought about a
3: lot. Now at the moment we're applying for more numbers for our community... Uh... I'm not sure what will happen if they turn us down because we've already got (laughs) quite a few extras as it is.
0: On the tapes, he talks quite a bit about various plots and schemes, some madder than others.
3: I've said that, you know, the the Jim Jones thing with cyanide is is old hat. We don't want to try that one. But I do uh, still keep in the back of my mind that we should all trot off down to the council chambers with a a little bag full of gelignite and a fuse and and blow the whole place up. That would be far more spectacular. Uh, I mean, that would even get the headlines in overseas papers. In fact, we'd be famous for several months out. In fact, if somebody, one of us, perhaps me, could stay alive, we could sell the book rights to it, I'd make a fortune out of it.
0: (laughs) Nothing like joking about a mass murder-suicide, eh, Bert? Or making other blowhard claims.
3: Otherwise, we're going to have a second sort of Northern Ireland on our hands, and that's going to be rather fun.
0: Mostly, though, Centrepoint engaged in the age-old tactics of diplomacy and what I guess we'd now call community engagement. They sought letters of support from local schools, went along to local meetings, that kind of thing. And they used one of the oldest tricks in the book. When you're faced with adversity, it's always a good idea to drown your opponent in paper. One of the great things about local councils is they're obliged to keep all their records, which means that we were able to go to the council archives and read some of Centrepoint's tsunami of paper. It's quite something. Centrepoint had two main lines of attack – they commissioned all sorts of official reports to bolster their claim that they should be able to expand. So, environmental reports and water and sewage reports and data-backed arguments about the positive economic impact Centrepoint had on the local community and wider afield. So that was the straight bat stuff. Then they commissioned some more... out-there reports. One of those was called Centrepoint, The Social, Cultural and Moral Threat. It confronted some of the allegations against Centrepoint head-on, trying to show that they were a load of old nonsense. It poured scorn on claims that a couple were seen having it off in the nursery where members of the public came to buy plants. The report did acknowledge that, yes, from time to time, people did garden in the nude. And remember, what's a commune without a bit of nude gardening, right? Anyway, yes, the report acknowledged that might be the case, but the only way the neighbours could know this was if they were using binoculars. And if they were doing that, that was their problem, not Centrepoint's. In fact, that particular claim, that neighbours were perving on center point through binoculars, was specifically levelled at Derek, the neighbour and lawyer leading the charge of the opponents. So we asked him about it.
1: I remember someone saying that about us, me, using binoculars, but first of all, I'm not sure I even owned any. I certainly didn't use any. And, um, no, it's never happened. So
0: there you have it, an official denial. But that's the thing about this particular report, Centrepoint, the social, cultural and moral threat. It splices articulate arguments defending Centrepoint with very specific denials of some very specific allegations about the commune. And then it just lobs in these counterattacks. It's the neighbours with binoculars who are the real perps, as if to throw people off the scent. It's very clever. And who wrote it? Well, not just wrote it, but was also prepared to stand up in front of a council hearing and deliver it, defending Centrepoint's honour? I kind of had this mousy presentation.
6: I don't know how I got to get the task.
0: That's right. Barry, the quiet, watchful pioneer.
6: But I can remember everyone, all the Centrepoint people sitting in the room listening. It kind of went across really well and powerfully, and I delivered it. Quite well. And, you know, the sort of like, oh, you know, you can do that. (laughs) Um,
0: Do you remember writing that? I
6: I don't remember the detail of what I said. I do, I can feel the kind of energy with which I was delivering it. You were having fun, yeah? I I guess it was, I'm not a great person at having fun. I (laughs) guess. I guess I felt like I was more on a mission, saving I was the one that that could put this together. Um,
0: But as much as she giggles about it all now, there are things that Barry looks back on and cringes. There's this one bit in her report where she defends having sex in front of your children.
6: I suppose this was just the way Bert was presenting it at this stage and so I would have been in true believer mode it's hard to describe the sexual revolution of the 70s and just how everything was okay and so I can't remember having any conflict inside myself and saying that but it's horrifying now
0: And then there's something that really stands out when you know what we know now. In the report that she read out to the hearing, Barry writes, What about the latest story I've heard that eight-year-old Centrepoint children have been taken to the Auckland VD clinic? This is patently untrue. When we talk about child sex, we do not advocate adults having intercourse with young children. She goes on. So what is the right response to a story like that? If we laugh because it is so ridiculous, we are showing lack of respect. If we explode in frustration, we are offensive. If we ignore it, we prove our guilt. If we try to take it to court, there is no known originator to the story. Here is Barry, flat out denying, in a public forum, that there are issues with child sex at Center Point. The same Barry who has seen the incident with the girl on the lawn. The same Barry who has seen a mother crying in the shower as her young daughter goes off to have her first sexual experience with Bert. How can Barry deny it? Because You clearly did know at yes. that point. So how did that work? Because you were denying there's believing, but there's also th- that yes. that was lying.
6: That that was yes, that would have been straight up denial because the lawn incident would have happened
0: before then. You've got to give credit to Barry for the way she doesn't shirk away from any of this now. It must be difficult, but she has a way of providing explanation and context without it ever sounding like an excuse. She always comes back to, yeah, it was wrong. Barry explains that around the time Robert went to the police, things settled down a bit, at least out in the open. There wouldn't have been any
6: more lawn incidents, anything public. Um, Everything would have gone underground at that point, although it continued.
0: But even though the sexual abuse might have moved behind closed doors at the time, she's not defending herself for lying in that council hearing.
6: Nevertheless, yeah, that, that would have been covering for the community, lying for the community.
0: The Centerpoint pushback against its various opponents was multifaceted and sophisticated. One of the big tricks during this rolling series of battles with the Council, one of the most effective ones, Centerpoint declared itself a religion. They'd realised that if they were a religion... That have more leeway around land use. Basically, if you're a religion, you can have more people on site. Those were the rules. So Centerpoint set about pushing the case that they were in fact a religion, just like Buddhism or the Hare Krishnas or the Methodists or Catholics, for that matter. They even lobbied the government statistics department so when people filled out the census, they could opt for Centerpoint as their religion. The other strategy was to get Centerpoint members to deliver personal religious statements to the council. In those council archives we've seen, there are page after page after page of people's testimony. The centre point is the one true faith, and Bert is their guru.
1: Having lived around Bert now for a number of years, I accept him as my spiritual spiritual
5: leader.
6: He can be compared to a church
5: minister, but
6: for me, he is more than spiritual water. Water. For me,
5: Bert's an important be part of my religion. He's the mirror no, I'm coming back religion, to. a and
0: struggle struggle. To total and honesty
1: right. and openness towards The, the goal relationship of between unconditional the love. and
0: the guru is predicated on my belief that Bert is a specially gifted spiritual teacher. <laughs> if that sounds like garbage, that's because it is. On the Burt tapes, you can hear he's not even trying to hide the fact that the claim to be a religion is a cynical ploy in their battle with the council.
3: We're applying for a maximum of 300. And to get there, we have to get round the town planning in some way. And one of the things that's come up is that if we are religious, a religious body, then we get conditional use for this property.
0: Barry also did her bit as editor of the Centrepoint magazine. She pulled together an edition that was all about Centrepoint the Religion. This thing dragged out for years with round after round of fight and rematch and appeals. There were wins and losses along the way. At one point, for 18 months actually, most Centerpoint residents had to leave the property each night. During the day, they could be on the site, but as night fell, they piled into these buses and became city nomads, dossing down at a shopping centre and a marae and wherever they could find, really. So, that was what it was like for the Centrepoint people during this long war with the neighbours. What was it like for the local councillors sitting there, having to listen to all this? Stay with us.
3: Ways of living is to give ourselves more choice, so that we're not just in a dilemma all the time, we don't have any choice at all.
0: You know that sting we play at the start of each episode? Stuff. Podcasts. Yeah, that one. We put it there because The Commune isn't the only show to come from the Stuff podcast empire. Stuff has been making podcasts since 2017 when we launched the true crime series Black Hands and in the year since then we've launched another 20-odd series covering a huge range of topics. The Erebus disaster, masculinity, the coronavirus pandemic, disability, the Polynesian Panthers and many more things I don't have time to mention in this very short ad. They're all available at stuff.co.nz podcasts. Go check them out just as soon as you've got to the end of this episode of The Commune.
5: I have forgotten something, Eugene. Um, I actually had a pad and paper there and my glasses where I was going to jot down. On the table there? Yes, where I was going to jot down. um, We've popped round to
0: Wynne Hoadley's house. It's a long time since she was the mayor of Takapuna, but you can hear she's still got an air of authority. Could we not do that please, Steve? (laughs) Her husband, Steve, is trying to take a photo of us all set up with our microphones. Nice to memorialise these things. But now is not the time, because, well, because
5: Wynne says so. You're most welcome to sit and listen. We're here to talk to Wynne about the point hearings. I was elected to the Takapuna City Council in a by-election in 1981. I became chair of that council's planning committee in 1983, and became Mayor of Takapuna City in 1986 until 1989. During that time, Centrepoint was very much an issue, was very much, you know, an item in the news. She sat on those hearings, and
0: we wondered what it was like, not just as a witness to the circus, but as a participant, and one who knew council hearings inside out. Could you see for yourself, this is pretty unusual for a council hearing?
5: How can I answer that, Adam, without sounding grandiose? I knew everything about hearings. I am a political scientist. My um, specialty was local government. Oh, there you go. Okay. So, yes,
0: I I knew what to expect. Oh, I'm going to have to tell you to not play with that because it goes through the microphone.
5: I knew what to expect. And um, I will keep my hands to myself. However, the interest and the level of concern um, was new to me. Now, remember, we met Wynne briefly in episode two, when she
0: told us that the thing the Centrepoint community had going for it, in her mind anyway, was that it was a defence against development of the Albany Basin.
5: So here was this trust doing a whole lot of creative things, not chopping down the bush, but enhancing the area. So they totally fit the bill as far as I was concerned. I thought they were actually quite great, just between you and me at the time. We should clarify, when win says they were quite great. She's
0: talking about the way they protected the bush. There was a lot about Centrepoint that she certainly did not think was quite great. One thing was the way that members were forced to give up their possessions to join the commune.
5: I thought that was bizarre. Uh, you know, people giving up all their possessions, their grandma's jewellery. I sincerely hoped that they'd given some of it away to the family before they did this. I felt that it was extremely reckless. But it's not like
0: Wynne was prude or against people trying out alternative lifestyles. She recognised that many of the Centrepoint people who made presentations to the hearings seemed sincere,
5: and the therapy that went on at Centrepoint wasn't completely new to her. In the States, we had been given the opportunity, Steve and I at Washington University, from some of the students there who were into group therapy and into consciousness raising and we were invited on a weekend thing when we went for one day and ran away Okay, we needed to know a bit more about this
0: So yeah, in the late 1960s Wynne got a scholarship to go to Washington University and it was while she was there that she met her now husband Steve, the one who was keen on taking that photo the late 60s was a time of great upheaval in the States. Protests against the Vietnam War on college campuses, civil rights campaigns, and lots of people were interested in group therapy. So, one day,
5: someone asks
0: Wynne and Steve if they'd like to
5: go on weekend. On a, a weekend, weekend, you know, up in the hills. And we have a retreat there, and... Um, it's not Buddhist or anything. It's just perfectly apolitical, not a religious, and we'll just do consciousness raising, and we'll cook our own lentils, and that was all right. Uh, so we, so oh, why not? You know, like when you're in your twenties. So we went. And um, then we had to walk around with our eyes shut and grab the first person that we came to and do touchy-feely things and then sit around in a circle and talk about our innermost thoughts. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to tell anybody my, my innermost thoughts. Um, and, and so Steve was looking decidedly uncomfortable. And but Anyway, so then we had to touch each other's feet, uh, which, oh, okay... And then we, we had lentils and we had some baked I can't remember. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm trivialising this whole experience.
0: Anyway, during a break between sessions, feeling decidedly
5: uncomfortable, I said to Steve, do you think we could go home? Please, he said, please. So we quickly went home, stopped at the pub had a few beers.
0: OK, so group therapy wasn't Wyn's thing but she could see how the good folk of Centrepoint might well be getting a lot out of this place. So she listened with an open mind, and frankly she liked some of the people. People like Keith, the GP. I
5: thought he was credible, he, he was a doctor. But she couldn't help wondering, was someone like Keith... I felt like saying to him, what the fuck are you doing here? And the more
0: she heard about Centrepoint... The more she wondered.
5: The more I learned, the more alarmed I became. There were some allegations that there was child abuse, which was very concerning, but it was not substantiated by anybody. I mean, the objectors didn't say, well, we've complained to the police 1,700 times and it was found that blah, blah, blah. None of that. When you're in a hearing, you have to be very careful with evidence. And for when?
0: That was always the problem. It wasn't the place of the council to decide if these allegations were credible.
5: I would say, well, file a complaint and we'll take it to the police. We are not the police. You know, we are concerned, we will listen and we will make notes, but we need somebody to file a complaint. Now, of course, we know someone had made a
0: complaint to the police. Robert. He had dished the dirt with credible allegations about sex abuse against children. And you had the detectives, Dean Thomas and Ray Van Bainen working up serious investigations into the place. So what happened? Well, it's almost unbelievable.
2: As Ray told us. I was getting information separately to what Dean was doing and
0: I started to pull things together. And Bert Potter knew this was going on. He knew the cops were closing in. Here he is on one of the tapes talking about it to the whole community.
3: There are detectives around right now who are coming out next week who are going to really go into it and they're going to try and nail us on some uh, point of law where we have allowed our children some form of sexual freedom which contravenes the law. Now I don't believe that the law should be, uh, that there should be any laws at all regarding sin and I think sexual. Freedom and sexual experimentation is, uh, is a moral thing. It's got nothing to do with criminal law at all. Then,
0: something very bizarre happens. Ray says he and Dean are working one day when they're called up to a superior's office. Which was unusual in itself because
2: we'd very rarely have much to do with the man at all. But when we popped up to the office, there was Potter
0: sitting in the office uh, taking tea and vickies. They're in the office of their boss and there's Bert Potter... Sitting there with him, having tea and bickies. Bickies equals biscuits, which equals cookies, if you're North American and were baffled by this sentence.
2: And uh, Potter was sitting there like, you know, the cat had got the cream. And what does the boss say to Dean and Ray? Nothing to see here. You're harassing this man and you need to
0: turn your attention to other things. Here's two cops, hot on the trail of child sex abuse allegations and drug allegations at a commune just down the road and they get told to stand down. Nothing to see here.
2: You certainly wouldn't be able to do that today. Could we have done something about it? Possibly. But certainly Dean was 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 very, very upset by it.
0: Did the two of you walk out and say, what the hell is yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and How I did think, that conversation go?
2: Yeah, we, we were certainly surprised and shocked by, by what had happened. It was so left
0: field. Ray didn't take kindly to this order from above, So he kept trying to work as centre point sources for more information. But things dried up. And obviously Potter had realised,
2: right, he went back and he told them in no uncertain terms. Nobody is to talk to the police. You're not to do this, you're not to do that. We need to tighten right up. And so it became quite closed. It was a very open community. Now it became quite closed. Why? Because they had things to hide.
3: Get away from that. We
0: now if you've followed the center point story over the years, and trust us, there's been millions of words written about it. You've possibly heard the cup of tea story before. The story of the top cop who's strangely chummy with Bert, serves him ten bickies in his office, and then calls a halt to the detectives' investigations. The story was first revealed in the Sunday Star Times in 2010, and it's been told again since. But during our reporting for this podcast, we came across a related story that we haven't seen anywhere else. And it's about another complaint to the police about Centrepoint around this time. We've spoken to someone who was a child in the early 80s, and back then she told her mum about a friend of hers, another young child, who was being sexually abused at Centrepoint. The mother went to the police about it, told them about what her daughter had reported, and the cops, they went and interviewed the daughter about these very specific allegations involving this other girl. We've seen documents which corroborate the sequence of events. In one document, a woman recalls Bert telling people that if the police ever questioned him about the abuse of this girl, he would, quote, lie like a flatfish. So by this account, privately he wasn't denying it happened, he was saying he'd lie about it. Serious stuff. But the weird thing is, when we looked into this, the story sputters out. We couldn't find any trace of what happened with this complaint. What we do know is it went nowhere. No one was charged over it. From the distance of all these years, that is just mind blowing. Here was another chance to at least put some heat on Centerpoint, at best start charging people for abusing kids, and nothing. But look, says Barry.
6: It's again in the context of time.
0: To be blunt, this was a time when it was extremely hard to get people to take accusations of sexual assault seriously.
6: People have said to me, why don't you just go
0: to the police? Things are far from perfect now, but back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even adult women who reported being raped would often find that their cases went nowhere. Perhaps because they weren't believed, perhaps because some people didn't think what had happened to them was really a crime. Barry says she knows people on the North Shore
6: who were raped as teenagers and gone to the Takapuna police and being told what sluts they were and, and go home. That's how society was.
0: We can't draw a direct line between that wider culture of victim blaming and the failure of a specific complaint, but it's something to bear in mind. There's something else too which in other circumstances you'd think of as a good thing. An attitude of live and let live.
7: I think there was a great reluctance to criticise Centrepoint from a large segment of society who believed in tolerance and being forgiving and and letting people live their own lives, especially back in those days.
0: This is former journalist Philip Alpers. I think New Zealand's
7: clearly addicted to that, to, to trying not to be unfair. And I think that was the main attitude to point. It was certainly mine.
0: In the 80s and 90s, Philip was a New Zealand television institution. He was best known for the popular consumer rights current affairs show, Fair Go, chasing down people who'd ripped off old ladies or sold dodgy cars, that kind of thing. And for a while in the 1980s, he also worked for another programme.
7: One day, the producer of Credo came to see me religious program, and asked me to do a couple of shows for them. I said, hang on, you you do realise that I'm an atheist? And they said, yeah, yeah, that, we want you to look at alternative beliefs. And so I chose Hare Krishna first, and then then Centerpoint, because they were both then in the news.
0: Philip did his story on the Hare Krishnas, and then he went straight along to Centrepoint next.
7: Which was a blast, uh, quite a contrast. But in, in another way, quite
0: similar. He spent a lot of time at Centrepoint, observing and recording what was going on. He distinctly remembers the day he first rolled up to the place.
7: It was very early in the morning and I'd been told that Bert was up in one of the long rooms, which was full of people who were still in bed or just getting up. And I noticed a bit of activity at the far end, but as I started to tell the closest person why I was there, a voice came from the far bed, ''Ah, you must be the man from Credo, come on over.'' So as this couple in the corner parted, I introduced myself to Bert and to his wife,
0: Maggie, and I sat down beside their bed for our first interview. So yes, Philip was too polite to say it crudely, but you heard right. Bert was uncoupling himself when he first spoke to Philip for the Credo documentary. Anyway, apart from that, what were Philip's impressions?
7: It was a very intimate, busy place. The the adults and the children were packed pretty close in the long rooms. And the activities, the sounds, the smells were all communal. It wasn't all that different from a room full of Hare Krishnas, frankly. The smells
0: were different. In the main, Philip found the place to be a bit of a refuge for many people.
7: I quickly realised that a lot of the people had been looking for a centre point for a long time. It was just right for them. Uh, It was the perfect place. And there were people there with with emotional and mental problems. There were lots of singles, and especially young solo mothers with children. I saw a lot of joy in their having discovered this place and their enjoying it so much. It was full on emotionally. Anger was expressed quite easily. Um, Love was expressed very easily. There was lots of sex. But they weren't there for that reason, most of them. Uh, I think most of them genuinely there, were there for the lifestyle and for the food and the company, and it, it was a huge family. And by and large, it seemed to work pretty
0: well. So far, so good. But what about the child's sex allegations? Did he see anything?
7: I heard no rumours of sexual contact with children. Um, the centre point, as I got to know, would have fled immediately if they believed that there were drugs for supply, let alone child abuse.
0: Now remember, as Philip points out, he wasn't there with his hard-nosed current affairs hat on, digging around, investigating, undercover, or anything like that. He was filming a religious programme. And by the way, he wasn't particularly convinced about that aspect of Centerpoint.
7: I don't think it was any more based on reality than mainstream religions. I saw Bert as a friendly, charismatic guy with a following, and it, his philosophy sounded knowledgeable, but his talks didn't seem to go anywhere. And, you know, there's no doubt he acted like a messiah, but with the difference perhaps that he'd anointed himself in oil. He had all the characteristics of a good con man. I dealt with a lot of con men on fair go. And the thing about con men is they have such excellent social skills. I came to like a lot of them. and. He had a lot of smarts when it came to gaining the confidence of people. And that's the mark of any guru, con man. Um, The reason they succeed is because they gain the confidence and the love of people.
0: So to Philip's eyes, Bert was a bit of a con man. The religion was meh. But he didn't see anything dodgy going on. And so he came away thinking...
7: I was interested in a lot of the differences I saw at Centrepoint. It was obviously just the right place for many of the people who were there.
0: Remember, as much as Bert painted an inside-outside picture and as much as he loved being at war with the neighbours, Centrepoint never shut itself off from the outside world. It welcomed journalists like Philip and others, including some heavy hitters like the Auckland star's Pat Booth, one of Aotearoa's most renowned investigative journalists. Booth went out and did a major piece following claims that Centerpoint was a source of pornographic movies. Claims that were never proved. Booth spoke to plenty of people, including those neighbours who had opposed Centrepoint, and asked hard questions, including about the child sex allegations. Bert told him, It's just not possible. There is nowhere private enough to get away with that sort of thing without everyone knowing. Booth's piece canvassed everything. But ultimately, ran with a pretty positive sub-headline. Great love for the children. So, some really big opportunities to stop the wrongdoing at Centrepoint have run aground. The cops have stalled, and the journalists who have gone looking haven't been able to make anything stick either. And with the sex allegations not sticking, where did that leave the council hearings? When and her colleagues on the council were hearing all these things, serious things were you inclined to believe the the people with their complaints? Did, you, did they sound plausible to you?
5: Adam, they did. They sounded plausible.
0: But, Wynne says, look,
5: all we could do was encourage people to go to the police. The power lies with the police. The power lies with the people who are complaining. And the police hadn't laid any
0: charges. So, that whole tactic that Derek and the team of opponents were using of gathering evidence of abuse and throwing all that into the middle of a council hearing about occupancy and so on, it fell short. Eventually, after many
5: years of back and forth, the council came to a conclusion that we would allow some increase in the numbers and allow it to continue.
1: I think the best way to say is we were just devastated. This is Derek again. As we felt we had so much on our side, not that they should go, but that they should not be allowed to expand. I think we were devastated that a lot of the evidence we produced about abuse was not believed. Yeah, it was quite disheartening. And at that point, we just gave up and effectively disbanded.
0: Centrepoint got their approval to expand their numbers. Up to 224 people could live on the property. The announcement was covered by most media as a victory for this group of plucky outsiders that would beaten the bureaucrats and the neighbours. The defences were battered, but that helped. Center point was ready to move on to the next level. That was episode five of The Commune, a stuff production. And seeing you've got this far, Hopefully you're enjoying it. So, you know the drill. Please feel free to jump on the Apple Podcast Store and leave us a rating. Five stars would be great. Or even better, a nice review. The Commune is written, researched and produced by Eugene Bingham and me, Adam Dudding. Mixing by Andrew McDowell of DigiCake. Music by Audio Network. For more information about the show, head to stuff.co.nz slash commune